0: Micah chapter 5, we did the first verse of chapter 5 last week as we ended, so we'll read through it and jump right into verse 2. Now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops, he has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on his cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So again, we're speaking of the kingdom of God, the restored uh, nation, and ultimately the planet being restored. But now we're focusing on the king. And the first thing that he has to say, that God has to say to us about this king of kings, is that he's going to be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, Bethlehem means a house of bread, and Ephrathah means fruitfulness. And if there's two words that can really be attributed to our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it those two? Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus produced fruit, produces fruit in my life when I could not produce anything. Were you guys very fruitful before you came to know the Lord? I wasn't. You know why? Because I just lived for myself. I just did what I wanted to do. That was the focus, taking care of number one, and guess who number one is? (laughs) You guys know. Me. You. And there was no true fruitfulness that came from my life that benefited anyone else. I was even to the point, I was so bad that that I I looked at taking advantage of, of other people's fruitfulness to benefit myself. And maybe, maybe, you guys weren't like that, but a lot of times I, don't, I just think that we're not willing to admit it. Jesus produced fruitfulness in my life. You know, the Bible tells us that what God's intention for our salvation, uh, part of what God's intention for our salvation was that we would bear fruit unto God and that that fruit would last. Are you guys fruit bearers? You can't bear fruit of yourself, you can't make it happen, but by abiding in the Holy Spirit, you produce the fruit of the Spirit, which not only affects you individually, but it affects the people around you. It changes your life more and more every day, and it starts to change the lives of people around you. Do you want to be life changers? Do you want to change people's lives? I do. I like people. And I want my relationship with God to to be fruitful, and the only way that it can be fruitful is recognizing that Jesus Christ is the only one that is able, was able, is able in the future to produce that in my life. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Now Bethlehem, uh, historically speaking, is a small town. It's not one to to boast of, of many mighty people, except for David. David was also born in Bethlehem, but it wasn't a metropolis. it wasn't a, a place that took off and that grew rapidly or was very prestigious. It was a small town. In fact, the scripture we just read recognizes it as one of the smallest towns, and the encouragement to them from the Lord our God is, don't worry, just because you're little doesn't mean that uh, great things cannot happen. Through you. How about how about that? Do you guys ever feel like that? You're little. You don't have much to offer God. You don't have much to offer to his kingdom. You say, Yeah, Tim, I want to be fruitful, but there's only so much I can do. I'm no, I'm nobody. What, what do I have to offer God in his kingdom? Listen, you are the one who just thought that in your head. You are the one that God desires to use the most. God is the God of the underdog. You know what? That's one of the reasons that I love our God. He is an underdog God. And he says that if you're down and out, if you're struggling, if you don't think you amount to much, if in your spirit of humility you're not willing because you don't think you have the capacity, I'm going to be glorified through you. We don't necessarily like so much the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but we can identify it with it when God says, I use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. That's Bethlehem. That's the cross. That's Jesus. That's everything that we know and see in the New Testament, in the gospel. It's people elevating themselves up, building their own tower of Babel into heaven, and God saying, I'm going to use those people who think that they're worthless so that not only can I exalt them by my grace, but I can also show that I am the God who lifts up the humble and humbles the proud. We don't want to be in that latter category. Let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and see what God's intentions are for the whole world. Anybody who wants to come to God and be used by him has to have the mindset of being submitted to him in humility so that he can use us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, we're starting, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. God is so wise, he is so great. He looks down at men who esteem themselves wise, and to him it's foolishness. Before I became a believer, I would listen to people who had thoughts and opinions and ideas and you know, I would like to consider myself back then a thinker, you know, asking questions, exploring things. And then I became a believer, and it seems like the, the longer that I'm in the Lord, when I hear some of these arguments from, from these people who are supposed to be brilliant minds, it sounds so stupid. It just sounds base. It's like, what are you guys talking about? That's the world. That's what the world has to offer. God's wisdom is so high, so far above that. Stephen Hawking just came out and made some comments. I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Hawking's or the, the book he, he wrote not too long ago. He came out and made some comments. He's always commenting about God and the solar system and the universe and stuff. And and after I got, I'm not even going to read them, but after I got done reading, I'm like, and people think this guy is smart? It doesn't even make any sense. Like, I can say something profound. I can say something. And just because it doesn't make any sense, it could be considered profound. And, and maybe I'll sit down and make a list, you know? Start posting stuff on Facebook. What does that mean? You don't know. (laughs) I know. Think about that. You just think about that. Where are Where is the wise? Verse 20 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men now that's something that you can post on your twitter or your facebook today after church see how much of a response you get think of it this way because the foolishness of God is wiser than men the stupidest stupidest unwisest, I can't even say stupid in that sentence, the most unwise thought that God has ever had, ever, is is much higher above the greatest wisdom that man has ever had. And God doesn't have bad thoughts. He has good thoughts. The weakness of God is stronger than man. The weakest point, the weakest element that anybody can point to God is stronger than than man can even conceive. And then we walk around and act like we've got it together. The world wants to display itself or show itself as great when God our Father is above all and his weakest points are stronger than man can even comprehend. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren. Now Paul's talking to us. Take note, church. Underline your Bible. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called <laughs> was if it was true back then, you think it 's true now? your pastor 's talking to you i that, This was one of my arguments as a young believer in fact i 'll never forget Grace and I get married. Northern California. We're driving down to Fort Bragg on the central coast for for uh, our honeymoon, and then down to Southern California. We're driving, and she's like glued against the side of the car. I'm like trying to touch her leg. She's like, don't touch me. It was funny. We're we're uh, in marriage. We're having these discussions and and talking about life. And she says, "Do you ever do you ever see yourself becoming a pastor?" And, and I think I, I laughed. I was like, <laughs> pastor. You've got to be somebody to be a pastor. You know, Pastor John Michaels, he was like an astrophysicist or something like that, you know? I like to listen to these other guys who have like three and four doctorates, and you've got to be somebody. God doesn't use people like me. And God says, actually, I do use the foolish, Tim. I'm like, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. God uses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. And you know that's exactly what happens. God gives man an inch, he goes a mile and he pats himself on the back, all the way every step he takes of that mile that's human nature it's the pride of life and god says because of that i'm going to take and use the foolish things of the world think of the gospel think of how really if you are thinking of it pragmatically how it doesn't really make sense The Son of God, Jesus Christ, in a Trinitarian relationship to God the Father and the Holy Spirit is is willing to be separated from the throne of God in heaven and come here? Not even here when we have like internet and cool games on our phones, but like the Middle East, when it turned from A.D. to B.C. or B.C. to A.D., he came here. Now that, to me, seems foolish. For him to be born into an unprivileged family, for him to be born into Bethleh- in Bethlehem, for him to be raised as a nobody, not in royalty, for him to come and then to suffer, to be brutally murdered, to be murdered. That doesn't make sense. But, you know, in God's economy... It all works out. It all fits together. And God says, I'm using the foolish things of this world, like he said in the beginning of the chapter, like the cross of Jesus Christ, to bring glory to myself so that we can be proud and confident that our salvation is in faith through grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. And this is where it starts in Micah chapter 5. In Bethlehem, a little town. Thousands of Judah. Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. I want you guys, and I pray that you would consider this this morning. Write it down. As we go out today, examine your heart. Ask the Lord what he has in store for you this week. Ask him, what do you want me to do this week, Lord? What is your position, what is your opinion of yourself in the eyes of God? If it's somebody great who can accomplish great things for God, I think that, that you may have to go through an extended time of waiting to see that the glory doesn't go to you or your ability, but the glory goes to God who can exalt those who humble themselves before him. And if we uh, approach God in that way as we go out from church today and say, Lord, I want to be used, but I don't have much to offer except what you've given me, the gifts, the talents, the opportunities, the relationships, the time, that you've given me is all I have to offer and I want you to use that for your glory. I can assure you that God is going to do things in your life this week that you didn't expect. But part of the problem is we don't really generally pray that prayer. Maybe you do and if you do I'm glad. Keep praying it. But a lot of times we just focus on the material things around us. The job, the raise at work, the you know, the things that that We can consume instead of looking for the things that we can give, the things that can be used in our life. When we approach the Lord and say, Lord, we want to be used by you. And the greatest thing we have to offer is you, the Holy Spirit, God is willing to use us. The few, the weak, the poor, the underprivileged, the unrecognized are the ones that God uses. Look at the nation of Israel as a testimony to the things that God wants to do. He, he picked the ultimate underdog. Have you looked at the nation of Israel's history? It's crazy, There was a, I forget the quote. In fact, I I should look it up or or write it down for you next time. But there's a quote where a king asks uh, a theologian or a Christian uh, for proof of the existence of God. And he responds, The Jews, my Lord, look at the Jews. Over time, how God has taking care of them and fulfilled his promises. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. This is God talking to Israel. Why did I choose you guys? Did I choose you guys because you were the greatest, because you were the smartest, because you were the best looking? No, I chose you because you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out of a mighty land and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Think of all the underdog stories in the Bible over and over. Isn't that all of them? Over and over and over and over again, it seems like Gideon versus the the Gibeonites, Midianites. Gideon versus the Gideonites. Now that would be a story. (laughs) That's a house divided against itself, cannot stand. Anyway, Gideon versus the Midianites. No, you still have too many people, Gideon. You still have too many people, Gideon. Get rid of more. Send them home. David versus Goliath, this little shepherd kid. We love that story. Why? Because we always identify ourselves with David in this world full of Goliaths. It seems like everything could be against us. Moses versus Pharaoh. Here's a guy with a staff coming practically by himself to the greatest ruler on earth at that time saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh rightfully, what does he do? He laughs at him. <laughs> what are you going to do? So what, you can turn your, your, your rod into a snake. Look at what my guys can do. They can do it too. And then the rod of God devours the three snakes of the sorcerers. God's power was greater. And it was only through Moses' calling and relationship with God that he was able to stand before Pharaoh. Daniel versus Babylon. Daniel versus the whole country of Babylon. The whole kingdom. And then the, the, the true underdog story that you and I can probably relate to the most out of all of, out of the ones that we, we talked about is us versus the flesh. Is us versus uh, this world. Is us versus the devil. You guys ever feel like the underdog? And I feel like I feel like everybody's just going crazy right now and everybody's worried about what happens tomorrow. And and like I have to go out and talk to people and love people and tell them not to worry about tomorrow because that's what Jesus said to me over and over and over again. But we're worried. But we're worried. Even the Christians stop worrying. Don't you know that God loves you? Don't you know that he's going to not only restore you completely in the resurrection, or the uh, or the rapture, but he's going to restore the whole planet, the whole world. It's all going to be restored. That's the that's the biggest underdog story yet. Is me and God working through His Spirit, and it's only by Him that I'm. Able to defeat the flesh. We have brothers and sisters in the church who can testify to that or even come against the world or the devil. And by God's grace, he calls us, he cleanses us, and he, he starts that work that he surely is going to bring to completion. The one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You guys know anybody that's been around forever off the top of your head? I mean, it's a, it's a prophecy, specifically speaking of the Messiah that's to come, that's going to be the ruler, and nobody else comes to mind. You know, even, even if you ask a secular person out in the world, hey, if, if the Bible said that somebody was going to come who, who's, who's lived forever, who would you say that would be? They, they would probably say Jesus, too. It's very clear that Micah is prophesying of the coming Messiah and that his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. You talk about Jesus. Here are some things to take note about Jesus. One of the first things that it says about him in verse 4 is, He shall stand and feed his flock. Jesus being the good what? Shepherd. Not the hireling. Not the person that takes care of the animals because it's his job and he gets a paycheck or a salary. The one who's willing to lay his life down for the sheep. The one who, who did lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus Christ he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Whatever came against Jesus that we read in the Gospels, he overcame by the power of God because he was the Son of God. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. It's hard to to meet anybody, even on the planet right now, who has not heard the name Jesus Christ. I've been all over the world to the most remote places in Africa and the Philippines, hiking through the jungle, crossing through rivers. And these people, in in the middle of nowhere, they've heard the name of Jesus Christ. There's not one name more famous than Jesus. Jesus is highly exalted even now. And there'll come a point where he's highly exalted as the king of kings that we can look forward to. And it's really just a matter of submission. If you're willing to submit to him now, you're going to be blessed when he is truly in his right place as the king of kings. But if you've heard his name, but you're not willing to submit to him or uh, subject yourself to him now, it doesn't matter because there's going to come a time when you will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And this one shall be peace. It doesn't say he'll bring peace. It doesn't say that he wants there to be peace. Jesus is peace. And this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men, he shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. This is speaking of the restored nation, the restored kingdom of God, being able to defend itself against all the enemies when the restoration happens. Nobody's going to be invading Israel. Nobody's going to be able to come against the people of God these rulers are going to rise up and be able to defend it. We know at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ that there's going to be one more opportunity. Satan is going to be released from the bottomless pit, and he's going to deceive many. They're going to come against the nation of Israel one more time, and even then it's not going to be possible to destroy the king of kings and his kingdom. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. So the presence of God, the presence of, of the nation of Israel isn't just going to be restricted to the land that we know of Israel in the Middle East, but it's going to be, there's going to be a, a presence around the globe. And this comes to, to us discussing the miraculous things that God has done with the nation. In fact, they're spread out all over the world now. There's never been a people who were exiled from their own land and restored more than once. Did you know that? But it's happened to Israel. It's happening right now for the third time. But for every other nation... Maybe there's still people uh, or bands that are traveling around like the Roma are very prevalent in in Europe, especially Eastern Europe. We know people, we know ministries that minister exclusively to the Roma people who would all draw their roots back to a forefather, a tribe, or a country, but have not their own country to live in. But the Jews have And they're being restored into the nation. And we're seeing it with our own eyes right now. In 722 BC, Assyria comes in. This is Micah warning them right now. Assyria comes into the north, uh, destroys part of the land, and takes Israel captive. Not long later in 587, it happens again for the second time with Babylon in 587 AD. Remember, you have to go backwards because it's, before Christ. And then in 70 AD, Titus. And that's really uh, the point, the, the, the time frame around Titus is when all of the Jews are expelled into all the different parts of the world. And for some reason, God they were able to live in those multiple places all over the world and then finally be restored when the nation of Israel became a nation like I referenced last week in 1948. There was no Jews there. And if there were, it was small bands. And nobody thought that the, that the, the governments of the world would just give this country back to these nomads, the Jewish people. But God did. And it happened like that. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33, it says, And you I will scatter among the nations at the point of my drawn sword, leaving your country desolate and your cities in ruin. This is what God tells the nation of Israel, what he did. He was going to expel them into all the world. But then in Micah and in many other places, he also promises that he's going to restore them to the land. What kind of prophecy is that? Do you think that if God wasn't God in these prophecies that he made, he, he could say something like, I'm going to take a whole country, I'm going to conquer it, I'm going to expel them, and then I'm going to bring them back? you think that that's something that, that is a logical thing to say? Well, not in our understanding, but for God, he can do anything. It's just not very practical. It's not very possible for that to happen. Are you guys following me? But God says, this is what I'm going to do, and he did it. Israel has seen its population scattered around the world. I have a few stats for you. When Israel was established, there were only 806,000 Jews that came back into the land when it was established in 1948. 806,000. Well, you know, it's a little under a million or so, but it's not very many, considering the place used to be its own country and was in existence historically since we we know. On the eve of the Israel Independence Day of 2016, Israel's population stood at a record 8,522 people. 75% of which is Jewish, 20% of which is Arab, and 4% other. Judging by current population trend data, experts predict that the population of Israel will reach 10 million by 2025 or sooner. Now, 10 million people in the nation of Israel by 2025, which they think is going to happen sooner rather than later anyway, is really what the Bible calls a remnant, when you look at Israel historically, there's been many millions of Jews and the Jews that God is going to bring back to the land of Israel in fulfilling his promises and restoring them so they're able to build the third temple. It's just going to be a remnant in the grand scheme of things of how many Jews there could be that go there. In fact, even the ones that stay out in the rest of the world, there's still a large population outside of Israel. Out of the 14.3 million Jewish people in the world, 43% reside in Israel. So not yet half of the Jews that live on planet Earth have come back to the nation. And God speaks of restoration. As of 2016, Israel has the highest birth rate in the developed world with an average of three children per woman. Israel has the highest birth rate in the developed world with three to one. They're growing. Uh, the, the, the article also said that this has to do with the large number of Orthodox families that live and that are, they're, they're having children, they're making Israel their home. Those people are looking to these scriptures For the restoration of their land. And they don't even know that it has a double, triple-fold effect. Not just on them and the promises that God made them, but on us and on the rest of the world as well. You know why? Because our God is a God of restoration. Back to the foolish things of this world. If you're one of those people who think you're foolish or who have made too many mistakes, or have done things that you think God can never forgive you for, it's okay, take heart, because our God is a God who desires to restore. When we approach God in humility, and we say, God, this is my sin, He is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen? Yesterday, today, and forever. I sinned yesterday. I don't remember what it was. It probably wasn't a big deal. But when I'm faithful to come to God and say, God, I don't want to be this guy. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to be like that. I want to be like you. He's just. And he's willing to forgive. He's willing to cleanse. I'm not talking about running around rampant in Sin City, doing whatever you want. We're talking about the humility that comes with being a believer. That should be producing or be produced by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that that conviction is made manifest and we respond to the Lord. At the point where you and I decide that we we can stop repenting, that's at that point when we stop growing spiritually. And for those people who think that they can call themselves a Christian and go out into the world and do whatever they want, you're no different. If you're not different from the world, then you can't really associate yourself as a Christian that's separate and has special blessings coming to you. I don't know if you guys understand what I'm saying, but you can't be both. You can't claim to be a Christian who's separate and then be asking God for the blessings that come with being a special holy people. You just can't. It doesn't work that way. God treats his children like his children, and the people in the world are left to fend for themselves. So let's make that distinction as Christians. God wants to take care of you, but it takes submission, and it takes humility. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries. All your enemies shall be cut off. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall not have. You shall have no soothsayers. Your your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall. No more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities, and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. What is God saying here? He's saying everything that man boasts in, specifically speaking to the nation of Israel, everything that man boasts in, God is going to take away. Remember when Jesus said he's going away to prepare a place for us? So that when we get to heaven and that glorious paradise, that place is prepared, nobody that's there can take credit for its building except the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundations of the earth. It's being prepared for us. And he's saying to the nation of Israel, everything that exalts itself against me, every wooden image, every city that you put some kind of reputation on, oh, New York is such a great city. Now again, he's speaking to the nation. Any kind of boast that they would have, their horses, their chariots, their abilities, God is saying, I'm going to take those things away, not so much in judgment, but to show them that he is going to care for them and they don't need to try to have any kind of uh, exaltation in themselves by what they've created with their own hands. I think that's good. Not going to be different car manufacturers. There's only going to be one. One. Toyota. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Jesus SUV. I don't know what it's going to be called. The point is, there's going to be no credit going to any person or company. We're only going to give credit to one. And God says, nobody else is going to get the credit that I deserve. I'm going to take that all away. And when I'm there... I'm going to be the one that gets the credit. And, you know, I really can't wait for that time when people aren't jockeying for position, people aren't looking to, to pat themselves on the back for their own accomplishments. Have you ever been in a conversation before and somebody said, yeah, I heard this really cool thing, but I can't remember who said it to me, and then they say it, and you're like, I said that to you. Kid, don't you remember? It was two Tuesdays ago, three o'clock. I said it to you. You've got to give me credit for that. That was a good one. I came with that myself. Okay, we don't need the credit. Whatever you have experienced in your Christian life, whatever good things, whatever benefits, that credit goes to God. That credit goes to the one who paid the ultimate price and he takes away the works and the acts of man so that he alone can be magnified and glorified, which is the way that it should and supposed to be. So a few things in closing as we wrap it up today. One, it's okay to be a foolish thing of this world. The only place that is worth having any worth is in the eyes of your Creator. And he doesn't look at you and think foolish. He doesn't look at you and think inadequate. He looks at you and he sees a vessel that he can pour into and use more than anybody else around you. And that's a promise or something that you can receive. Lord, I want to do it for you. I want you to receive the glory. It's okay. And if... The same mistakes keep coming up or happening. The second thing, humility. Humility, repent, ask the Lord to forgive you. Tell him you want to keep going. God is the God of restoration. He wants to use you. He's been building up and going to use his church, capital C, and even us here at Paradise because he loves us. We don't have great things to boast in of how great we are because the only thing that we have to boast in is the Lord our God. So the third thing, as you, as you survey your life and you think about the things that God has done and doing in your life, be willing to give him all the credit, all the glory, down to every last thing. Because without him, no matter what you think, you wouldn't have any of it. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you use us. You call us. You set us apart. And God, we want to be the light that you've called us to be and the salt, especially in these days and in these circumstances that we find ourselves in. God, we love you. We want to be humble. We want to give you the credit. We want to see you restore. Continue to restore in our lives. Restore those around us. Restore broken relationships in our families. Place yourself in that position that is the highest position, or even better, even necessary that we would place you in that position. That nothing else would take precedence in our life. No job. No boyfriend or girlfriend, no relationship, no career, no husband, no wife, no kid would take the place that you rightfully have and should have in each one of our lives so that we can be those fruitful Christians that you desire us to be that we would produce fruit, God. We ask that you would help us to produce fruit this week for your glory. And then when that fruit is manifest, God, that we would give you all the credit. Because if it wasn't for you, nothing good would come from our lives. Just those things that would benefit us or benefit those that were closest to us. But in our submission to you, God, we recognize you as our King of kings and Lord of lords, and we subject ourselves to you and give you all the glory you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.